0: Uh, 34 class review with an introduction to jhana meditation where I um, broadly explained the method and the purpose of the method. Uh, and then we had five classes on the Satipatthana Sutta, the primary sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness. And the first part of that is the, is the Buddha teaching us the four foundations of mindfulness as our jhana practice. Uh, and then we looked at how to apply that developing concentration um and using that developing concentration at developing genre to establish refined mindfulness which is um the only reason i use that term refined as opposed to just saying mindfulness is that um mindfulness has become the new uh, modern new age religion and it's often thought to just be oh be mindful of whatever is occurring in your life and occur that that just um Uh, creates a a situation where we're always grasping after being mindful in whatever is occurring in this moment. And it's often presented as be mindful of dishes and be mindful of walking. Uh, Be mindful of this, be mindful of that. It's a good thing to be mindful of whatever you're doing, but that should be a natural consequence of jhana practice, not your jhana practice, because that's always distracting. It's always grasping after. So we develop jhana meditation on our cushion and we take that jhana meditation, that developed concentration off our cushion and use it to integrate the Eightfold Path as as our path of awakening or gaining full human maturity. And the reason why I'm explaining it that way is that engaging in dhamma practice from that basic foundation of the four foundations of mindfulness and then the structure of the Eightfold Path keeps us from grasping after and incorporating other practices that have nothing to do with the Dhamma and will prove to only be a distraction from developing the Dhamma fully. So the Buddha taught a very simple and direct practice. And the only real caveat to the practice is it has to be kept pure. It has to be practiced as the Buddha taught us and not with our our human fabricated mind influences about how we like our practice to actually be, rather than what an awakened human being taught. And so, um, the rest of the Satipatthana Sutta teaches how to apply this ever-developing concentration and refined mindfulness to different themes that we become aware of, um, such as the, the, the five hindrances or the five clinging aggregates. We learn that we start practicing mindfulness and concentration as we come in contact with the world through the Sixth Sense base, And it's at that point of contact that we practice the Dhamma. And it is at that point of contact that we awaken. And you've heard me say it uh, more more than a few times. Dhamma is to be practiced right here and right now. There's no Dhamma practice that we can practice yesterday. We're not in yesterday. We're in right here and right now. And we can't practice the Dhamma for the future or in the future. It's only right here and right now that we can reclaim our minds and recognize that there's nothing personal in this moment. And this moment is where my life is occurring. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, not when I'm more prepared for it, not when I'm better, not when some bold guy in French town said, you're ready. Right here and right now is where our life is presenting itself. Right here and right now is where we're to be alive. And it's only right here and right now. Now this sutta that I'm gonna teach, it's a kind of a medium length sutta, so sit back and enjoy it. Um, but it, it talks about the four levels of jhana or four levels of meditative absorption. These are taught so that we recognize that we're deepening our concentration, but they're not to be grasped after. There's no prize here and there's no test. test. This is just the Buddha teaching us what we should be looking for in jhana meditation so that we recognize that we're, yes, we're actually developing concentration. And as we recognize that in ourselves, our practice becomes self-empowered rather than doing doing it because somebody's teaching us. Or we think that we should do it to become a better person, right? That's a, That has tinges of salvation, which is to be recognized and abandoned. There's no salvation in, in human life, as, at least as far as we know. So, we, the Buddha taught a Dhamma that human beings can, be, can experience it and understand it. But he didn't teach anything that could not be experienced in this present lifetime. He taught that awakening occurs right here and right now, not when we're good enough or not when we have the right teachers. It's when we have the right practice and actually practice. All right, the Jhana Sutta. Meditative absorption, mind and body united. On one occasion, the Buddha addressed those gathered. I tell you friends that the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking depends on fully developing the four levels of jhana. And now this next part is, is um, it, it, it's, <laughs> trying to, it's extremely interesting but it also is describing, and you can almost hear the Buddha pleading us to stop living in imaginary existence. Because these things that I'm gonna be describing now, the, the dimension of the infinitude of space and different non-physical realms were common, commonly taught during the Buddha's time as a, a spiritual practice, and that we should be looking for salvation and they're just as common today with slight variations and, and a different color on that type of uh, magical and mystical thinking. But these things are still taught today and they're still taught as something valuable. Um, and the, the variants on them are only so that they're more palatable to a, a, modern, uh, a modern audience, but they're still, are living in our imagination. So that what was common during the Buddhist time, the four, developing the four levels of jhana and overcoming the desire for the establishment in the dimension of the infinitude of space, the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness, the dimension of nothingness, most of modern Buddhism resolves in nothingness or emptiness. That's the big, uh, what's the right word? I can't think of it, but most of modern Buddhism resolves in nothingness, that the self is nothing, or that our experience is is ultimately one of emptiness. That's cruel. That's not describing human life in any way. And human life is not empty, and it's not nothing. A human life is to be lived, if we can live it, but we have to be present for it. And it seems as that human beings are not born with the uh, the wherewithal to be present for their own life. But again, we understand that, that life is distracting. Because we don't understand four noble truths, our minds are distracted from birth to death from this present moment. We talked a little bit about this last night, about being present for our life is the answer to life. It's the answer to happiness. It's, it's the answer to, to calm. It's the answer to understanding right here and right now. so anytime we're grasping after any of these fabricated, you know at least the, the, the dimension of, of uh, infinite space sounds that sounds like it might be a pretty cool thing to, to float around in in a while, but they're all just a distraction. They're as we'll hear the Buddha's words they're painful, they're a disease they're not to be grasped after <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> <clears throat> and there's nothing of any value for a human being to live in their imagination now, I always got to put a caveat human imagination has given us great things but it's also given us horrible things there's a great movie right now called Oppenheimer that is pretty accurate about this man who developed the atomic bomb and how well, he felt about it during this, the, the process and, and right afterwards and what happened then and I'm just using that as, a, as one example. So our human mind is, a, is an incredibly powerful uh, and creative um, tool. But when it's not well-focused, it can do some horrible things. And can, it, it can create um, imaginary ideologies that cause extreme pain for human beings in the name of salvation. Now I'm talking about modern religious crusades, et cetera, or the modern jihad, you know, that, that these things are um, rooted in a fabrication of what life is all about. And they become so corrupted because they keep reestablishing themselves in these fabricated dimensions and a justification for doing so that goes along with it, with whatever the doctrine is. Again, going back to that, From 2,600 years ago, the Buddha saying, don't go there. Don't live in your imagination. Don't live in a fabrication. It's painful. It's a disease. Live in this present moment. Okay. Or the the dimension of perception nor non-perception. That last one is kind of a catch-all for everything else that you can't explain. The Buddha continues. Friends, the ending of the defilements depends on the first jhana. The first jhana, which is secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. One enters the remains in the first jhana. We do that when we begin our jhana meditation. We establish seclusion from the world. It might be a room or a corner of a room, but someplace that's quiet. It might even be our van, as one of our famous meditators does. Do you ever meditate in the house? Uh, <clears throat> we'll do it in my workshop sometimes. Oh, there you go. When things get too hot in you know, the Yeah. And, so, comfort. and comfort and seclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that's that, that's the beginning of the first jhana. again nothing magical, mystical, nothing that human beings can't do. Find a quiet place and begin jhana. Secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities, one enters and remains in the first jhana. This first jhana is experienced as rapture or joyful engagement. I I left that word in there um, as I was restoring the suttas because it's a a commonly used word, even though it's almost always applied inappropriately in relation to the Dhamma. It doesn't mean the second coming. It simply means it's a joyful engagement with whatever we're rapturous about. In this context, we are rapturous. Because of that seclusion, where we've taken a joyful engagement in the seclusion that we've established, we've left the world behind for, for intentionally for five minutes or 30 minutes, whatever we're doing, and we sit. That's the beginning of concentration. We're shutting out the distractions of the world and we're sitting in a secluded spot. This seclusion is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So just like we did here, we begin our meditation and we begin to sit. We begin to be mindful of our breath. And for most of us, we're immediately going be to be distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion. And what do we do then? Well, the most important thing that we do at that point, that's the beginning of Dhamma practice, is do not judge ourselves if we're distracted. Be very gentle with yourself. The key to Dhamma practice is to be gentle with yourself and be gentle with others throughout. So we begin our jhana practice and we recognize that we're caught up in a distracting feeling or a thought or an emotion, uh, maybe an argument I had with, with my boss or my spouse or something, and that that invades my concentration. And I start thinking about it and i start judging people and judging myself and judging the situation and taking it to great lengths until i realize what i'm doing and i take a breath i unite my mind and my body and i establish that first jhana again we weren't wrong to get caught up in a feeling or a thought or a distracting chain of thoughts in fact it's 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 specifically for that reason that an awakened human being taught jhana. He recognized that that's what we do. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing right about it. But right method is to recognize that we're distracted by our own feelings and our own thoughts, our own, right? It's not, nobody else is imposing our thoughts or feelings on ourselves. They're all always ours. Take ownership of it. Become a sovereign human being. In other words, not distracted or influenced by all the stuff that's coming in from the outside. Establish that that basic jhana practice in seclusion, right? And now as we do that, and we find that we're caught up in a thought or a feeling, again, this is something that people get caught up on, directed thought and evaluation. It simply means we direct our thoughts back to our breathing. While we're doing that, we might fall into evaluating our practice, or how we're doing this, or this is just too painful, it's too boring, it's not, there's not enough to do here, I can't just sit here and be mindful of my breath, be mindful of your breath, right, that's the hindrances coming up, anything that comes up during jhana meditation that's distracting you away from your breath, is fodder for practice, take it and come back to the sensation of breathing, the Buddha continues, furthermore, the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking depends on the second jhana, which is the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. So it just means that our concentration is deepening and we're able to, to, to um, be mindful of one breath after another, after another for a while. But again, the Buddha never put any qualifications on, okay, be mindful of your breath for 20 minutes and now you're getting somewhere. Never said anything like that. The only instruction he ever gave is the four foundations of mindfulness and go find the root of a tree or an empty hut and do jhana. So again, no matter how, we might spend a half an hour in meditation and only come back to our breath twice. Is that a successful jhana session? Of course it is. You're engaging in the method. And the more you do that, the more you'll be able to, to do that as a matter of course, it will be more natural to you. Your concentration will increase and you won't have as much directed thought and evaluation. But when you do, it's normal and it's common. We do that. We can't help but do it. But as our concentration increases, the Buddha says, furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the second jhana, which is the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. This second jhana is, expect, is experienced as rapture, and pleasure, joyful engagement with, now with concentration. We recognize that our concentration is increasing. Again, the Buddha's teaching this for the sole reason that we do just that, recognizing that this method that I'm doing myself is bearing fruit, it's deepening my concentration. Then the Buddha says, free of directed thought and evaluation the joy of concentration permeates our entire mind and body. Again, there's no time a place on this. The Buddha doesn't say, if you're really good, you can do it for 10 minutes. He just says, do it and recognize that you're doing it and take pleasure in that. And what are we taking pleasure in the concentration that permeates our entire mind and body? And why is there pleasure in that type of concentration? Because now we're living our life. Now, for many of us, for the first time in our life, we're in our life. We're right here, right now, where our life is occurring. We might not even recognize it initially. But if we continue with practice fairly quickly, fairly early in practice, off our cushion, we're going to recognize that we are more well-concentrated. We might feel ourselves off our cushion, getting distracted by a feeling or a thought, and we'll come back, we'll take a breath and unite our mind and our body. Or as our practice continues and we find ourselves off our cushion, getting distracted or agitated or angry or greedy or averse to something, we'll recognize, wait a minute, that's not me. That's not mine. That's not what I am. That's a fabrication. Take a breath, unite your mind and your body and get on with your life right here and right now without judgment, without any, um, um, without any eye-making in the moment. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Simply taking a breath and establishing these deeper levels of jhana. The second level, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. Again, even if it's just for a brief moment, almost unnoticed, notice it. And notice it that your jhana practice is bearing fruit, you're engaged in the right method. The Buddha continues, furthermore, The ending of the defilements depends on the third jhana, which is the fading of rapture, right? That joyful engagement with the Dhamma is fading. It doesn't mean that our practice is becoming miserable. It means that our concentration is increasing. They remain equanimous, mindful alert, and sensitive to pleasure, the pure pleasure of deepening concentration. We're sensitive to it. There's a difference between being sensitive to something and be and sensually grasping after, engaging in sensual indulgence. It's similar words with two different meanings, isn't it? So sensitive to is, is being in this moment, well concentrated and mindfully present and sensitive to the pure pleasure of being alive and being understanding of what it means to be a human being in this moment without the need for anything to be any different than it is. Imagine that, being present for this moment without the need for anything to be any different than it is. That's sanity, folks. It's insane to think that something should be different than it is. Why? Because it is. It's it's, here it is. This is what's occurring. Does everybody get that? that, I'm using a strong word, but that, that it's insane to think that this should be different than it is or I should be different than I am in this moment? because this moment can't be any different than it is. But my experience of this moment is caused by what I'm holding in mind. And if I'm holding in mind the framework of the Eightfold Path, then no matter what's occurring in this moment in my life, will be experienced as calm, because I have now gained control of my mind through this method. Would it be fair, John, to say, that coming from first through the third, just- a reference point, it's becoming more refined. Yes. Like so That experience of joyful engagement is now sensitive to pleasure. Yeah. So there's
1: a refinement.
0: Yeah, you, you actually, come, you can recognize calm, it.
1: Because you're calming.
0: Yeah. And that, it, I, I use the word, the term refined mindfulness often to refer to what David is saying. We're not just trying to be mindful of all kinds of things. It's a refined mindfulness. And it's noticing what is most important in this moment. Thank you, David. Furthermore, the Buddha says, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth jhana, which is the abandoning of evaluation. It's not just evaluating our our jhana practice, everything. And even though in the beginning of jhana practice, we'll probably only be able to do that for a brief few moments. That's where we're going with this. The ending of all evaluation and simply being a reference point to what's occurring. And again, to many of us, that might seem like annihilation. Excuse me. How am I going to function in a world like that when I'm simply a reference point? Excuse me. Being a reference point doesn't mean we're, my mother used to use the a lump on a log. Um, it doesn't mean we're a lump on a log. In fact, it means we're more mindfully engaged in our life than we've ever been. And we'll be performing at a level that's much higher than we've ever done, but we won't be using that performance simply to gain something, especially to get the biggest pile of gold before I'm I'm gone. Well, we'll now start using our mind and our concentration the way it's meant to be, to be present for this moment and do what I'm doing, whatever that might be. But it will be framed by the Eightfold Path. And again, it doesn't mean that we, we have to give up everything and go live in the woods. The Dhamma meets us where we are and it's applicable in any kind of human life. So live the life you wanna live, but live it within the framework of the Dhamma and you will be calm, you will be content. You will be mindfully engaged in your life as it occurs. They enter remain in the forest Yana which is pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. There's no more grasping after or aversion to anything. Why? Because I'm present for this moment and I understand this is my moment to live my life. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. The fourth jhana, which is a pleasant abiding. So I'm just going to ask you all to notice that you've had, have had a pleasant abiding in this meditation session that you did this morning. And you likely have that every time you meditate, but you might not not recognize it. Now I'm asking you to recognize it when that pleasant abiding is there. What does that mean? It might mean for just one breath, I'm pleasantly abiding in in my life. My mind and my body is united right here and right now, and you can feel it. And again, in the beginning, it might be the most fleeting of experiences you've ever had, but the Buddha is teaching it so that we notice it. And if we notice it and we recognize that we did this, right, we're doing this, then you can recreate it. And again, that's why every time I teach this, the, the brilliance of this human being becomes more understandable to me. It's so simple and so basic. But what he's saying really is recognize your life that you're living and recognize that that life, when it's engaged as a reference point to what's occurring, rather than a grasping after or an aversion to what's occurring, is experienced as pure equanimity. Neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Imagine that. Good to see you this morning, Adam. I'll see you you soon. The Buddha continues, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path understands that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness is impermanent. It's stressful, it's a disease, it's painful and an an affliction. And as such, it's anatta, it's not so. If it's painful or an affliction, how can it be a part of me? It's something that I'm doing to me or it's something that as a consequence of living in the world is occurring to me, but that's not me. What's me is what I think I am. What's me is what I think about this experience that I'm having. And if I want more of this experience than there is right now, I've lost my mind. And if I want less of what's occurring in this moment, I've lost my mind and I'm using that and I, um, a fairly literal sense in that I've lost control of my mind because I want something to be different. Does Everybody follow me, everybody with me when I say that? Okay. So now the Buddha is gonna describe what we do. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path dis- disregards those phenomena, the ones that are distracting us and inclines their minds to the cessation of ignorance. Ending ignorance of four noble truths. Then he says, nothing remains to provoke the birth of suffering. That's the only teaching that the Buddha ever gave on on birth or rebirth. What are we giving birth to in this moment? He never taught anything about getting reborn in a future dimension or some kind of non-physical realm. He wanted us to understand, what am I giving birth to in this moment? Because that will determine the experience of our life. What am I giving birth to in this moment? So you've heard me say that the Dhamma is to be practiced right here and right now in this present moment. And each moment provides the opportunity to incline our minds towards awakening, full human maturity, or to continue ignorance of Four Noble Truth and continue stress and suffering. And that is the only choice we ever have in our life, to choose to incline our minds in this moment towards awakening and calm or continue to grasp after and to be averse to things. Greed and aversion or calm. Then the Buddha uses this beautiful metaphor. It is as if an archer or their apprentice went to practice on a particular target. With continued practice, they would be able to shoot quickly for long distance, piercing many targets. In the same manner, they reach the cessation of the the defilements with continued practice. If not then, through continued joyful right effort and cessation of the five lower fetters of self-identification, right? Everything is me. Everything is a reflection of me. Grasping at rituals and practices. This really kind of stunned me when I first read it and understood what the Buddha was saying because almost everything that I had learned had a lot of rituals and other types of um, ritualistic practices as the practice itself. 2,600 years ago, the says, don't go there because it was just as common during his time to engage in rituals and practices and bowing and all this. I took my vows in a certain Tibetan tradition uh, that taught that Dhamma, I can't even remember the number, now. Dharma practice only really begins after you've done 120,000 full prostrations, and of course that takes many years and devoted practice. And again, that that tradition that I took my vows in and then disavowed, um, discounted meditation, and they had a lot of other rituals and practices, but they didn't. They never meditated. They never did any, any the the basic practice that the Buddha taught. They completely did. And I'm not putting it down. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this to point out the difference between what has, even during the Buddhist time was presented as something as skillful and useful to do when it was just a distraction. So again, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because this is common today too. The lower fetters of self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, doubt and uncertainty, when we're engaged in the practice and we know we have the, the practice established, watch for doubt and uncertainty. That's one of the hindrances that will always take us out of our practice. Sensual craving, which in, in jhana practice in this moment, is, is the immediate need for something to distract me. This is just too boring to sit for five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes. That's what the Buddha is referring to. Sensual craving and, or deluded thinking which, is, which covers everything, right? That's what, we're, that's what we're developing an understanding of our own deluded thinking because of our ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And this is the method that the Buddha taught to overcome that. Then the Buddha says, When they let go of those things, they are released. They are unbound, unbound from wrong views, ignorant of four noble truths. The Buddha continues, I tell you friends that the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion and deluded thinking depends on fully developing the four levels of jhana and overcoming the the establishment in 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 these fabricated dimensions or in our imagination. So the dimension of the infinitude of space sounds like a cool thing to do. Um, But that's just as much a distraction as thinking that in this moment or in this next moment, I should be something other than I am. Because it's all the same thing. It's all a fabrication. It's all living in my imagination or my imaginary life of what I should be. Right. Which is conditioned upon us. Everybody has a different um, view of themselves rooted in fabrication based on everything that we've experienced in our life. We can't help but be conditioned towards certain things. Most of them are, all of them are rooted in greed and aversion. I need myself to be more than I am, or there's something wrong with me and I need to gain something, some knowledge or some uh, maybe mystical power that will compensate for what's wrong with me. What we're doing is wasting our life fixing something that's not broke. Be a human being in this moment and you're done. Be present for your life right here and right now, without any color, without the need for it to be any different. And you've liberated yourself from your own ignorance. And that's where we're going here. The Buddha continues, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, having abandoned self-identification with form Having abandoned aversion, right? Again, the Buddha's just talking about being a reference point to what's occurring right now. Having abandoned aversion, have abandoned self-reference, now here and now there. Such an interesting line, isn't it? And it was a little bit, it was a difficult line to get right. Now here and now there. It relates back to this idea of infinitude of space, infinitude of consciousness, infinitude of this establishing ourselves everywhere now here and now there I, my mind is scattered into everything no he's the buddha is teaching us to reclaim our minds stop scattering ourselves with self-reference now here and now there if when they do that they enter and remain in perception of the infinitude of space so the buddha is teaching this that we could get caught up in thinking that we've gotten something here this is, this is something valuable. It's just a distraction in your meditation. Here they understand that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, and as such an affliction. It is not self. So anytime we, we try to establish ourselves in our imagination or in an imaginary realm, we've lost our minds. Why? Because that's not for human beings. And the Buddha never taught that there's no such thing outside of a human life. He just said, you can't experience it. It's not for human beings. Live this human life. And if we, if we are going to live this life fully, we have to get rid of all the, the nonsense, the fabrications that we've conditioned ourselves to think this is what life is about. And we end up feeling empty, no matter what we're doing. And we and we feel, and isn't it interesting that most of modern Buddhism, I'm not trying, I don't know, it sounds like I'm putting it down, but it resolves in this notion of emptiness. But the world is empty, unless we're here for it. Our lives are empty, unless we're actually living there. And that can only be done right here, right now, with a well-concentrated mind, holding in mind the refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. It takes this ever deepening jhana as the foundation. That's why I emphasize it and we emphasize it so often. The right method of meditation is the foundation of everything the Buddha taught, but it has to be the right method or it simply won't work. And the right method is encouraged while as we recognize our deepening concentration. The wise Dharma practitioner disregards these phenomena and imaginary existence and inclines their minds to the cessation of in- ignorance. Nothing remains to provoke the birth of suffering. I've cleaned my mind out of all the ignorance, ignorance of four noble truths. So there's nothing left within me to provoke even one more moment rooted in that ignorance, rooted in disease. This follower of the noble Eightfold eightfold Path, from fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite peace. And I bet you a lot of you would would say that you've known an exquisite peace, even if it was just for that brief moment. But you touch it in jhana meditation. And I bet many of you have taken it off your cushion and experienced it in your moment-by-moment life. Be mindful of that. Don't cling to it. But recognize that's a direct result of your Dhamma practice. From fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite piece. Fabrications have ended, grasping after two, dispassion and unbinding established. So the Buddha is describing both the awakened, fully mature state, but the states that we experience during jhana practice as we develop the Dhamma ourselves. And so, has anybody not experienced these? Uh, four levels of jhana, and even in um, and, and that exquisite peace, no matter how fleeting. Is anybody not? Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let the Cody off the hook here. But. Is anybody not? And this is ordinary. It might seem extraordinary at first, it did to me, but actually this is utterly ordinary. When we can establish that exquisite peace of this moment, being alive in this moment, now we are fully alive. And there's an exquisite peace there no matter what's going on. Recognize it and take a breath and then you'll be in the next moment of your life. This is for overcoming the desire for the establishment in, in these fabricated di- the dimensions. And I won't go through them more, or anything in our imagination. We're becoming a human being. And we're recognizing what a human being is and what a human being does and how they actually live their life skillfully without grasping after, without living within a fabrication. The Buddha continues, thus, this is a profound understanding, unsurpassed in overcoming the five clinging aggregates. Uh, uh, The five clinging aggregates are the Buddha's description of the ongoing personal experience of suffering. And well, there's classes on five clinging aggregates, but that's enough to understand what we're talking about. Overcoming the personal experience of suffering. The Salata Sutta, the second arrow. These followers of the noble Eightfold Path who have attained this understanding and emerged from dependence on ignorance. Until we come across this, we're living our lives in dependence on ignorance. It's framing every moment of our life until we recognize it and abandon it. Those followers of the noble Eightfold Path who have attained this understanding and emerge from dependence on ignorance. Notice the quality that Buddha first um, establishes. Skillful meditators all are engaged in the right method. They will rightly explain this to others. The end of the Sutta. It's an interesting ending too, where the Buddha says, once we do it, we'll be able to skillfully explain it to others. That's not the goal. We're not here to, be, to save the world, but we'll be able to do it skillfully. And I think every one of you who has been engaged in practice for a little while has had the experience of other people noticing the change in you. And that's when you become skillfully able to teach others by your example, but that's not the point. The point is to be present right here and right now. The point of this sutta is to recognize that each and every jhana session, when we're engaged in the right method, will develop this, this that we're talking about, will develop this calm and peaceful mind that's able to stay present for my life as my life occurs. So that's today's uh, lesson. Let's go around the room and I'm going to go to Jeff first. Hello, Jeff. Hello, John.
2: Hello, Sangha um yeah this is this is a great suda lays it out in detail in simple terms um having said that john (laughs) i i've been more distracted and caught up in nonsense here lately than i ever have i think you know i'm back to work and i'm trying to get caught up i'm sitting here surrounded by piles of files that I've got to work in, and it's been really tough. I, you know, I I felt as though I had a a, a effective jhana practice, and suddenly I find myself um, almost having an aversion to try to sit, yeah. and then. Then I have an aversion to the aversion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right. And it causes stress. And then I'm stressing because I'm stressed. Yeah. It's the strangest thing I've experienced, I think.
0: So you're judging yourself harshly, aren't you?
2: Yeah. Right. Because I'm not, you know, accomplishing.
0: Yeah. And the curious thing is that it's the same Jeff.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, not much has changed other than uh, I'm adding pressure to myself.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you just, I, I, well, I won't get into what went on with you, but you had some big um, environmental changes for some time. You had to go to a different place. um, Your routine changed. Yeah. And, and that almost, I mean, I hear that all the time. It's just when our routine changes, we get out of our natural spot of seclusion and, you know it's just it's just like that, but you're back you recognize it and you're, you're engaged in the practice.
2: But isn't it odd how much we depend upon a routine or schedule?
0: Well, so the Buddha recognized that too. that's why he taught right effort. And you've seen it yourself. Those that have developed the Dhamma are the ones that continue practice. But that makes sense too, doesn't it? So and you're right back into it already. Again, the, 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 the I, I know I've said this before. I, there's a, I, I got a phone call a couple of years ago, maybe longer than that now, from somebody who I only talked to online. He was beginning to practice, but I could hear this agitation in his voice and he wanted to know, why did the Buddha keep meditating after he awakened? And of course, really, I, mean, I explained a little more, but I said, what else would he do? He was seeing meditation as a chore to overcome, to get to a certain place. Hmm. Where meditation is is just a tool. It's a brilliant tool, and it's an effective tool when used correctly. But it it's just that you know, and there's nothing really special about it. But we have to do it. But you're using it right now to regain that control of your mind and regain control of your life. Is, is that correct, Jeff? Well,
2: um, y- yes and no. Uh, I uh, I think what I'm um it, it, the control is kind of an illusion, isn't it? i mean uh trying to control uh a impermanent and changing experience is kind of a fool's errand in a way
0: oh yeah yeah the the control begins on our cushion. And then continues to refine mindfulness. So the stuff that's distracting us is not—we're not controlling our minds, are we? But no. you're just describing the getting back to that place.
2: Well, there probably is an element of trying to control a runaway train too, but
0: yeah, yeah, it's directed thought. Yeah, directed it's thought. Directed thought off your cushion.
2: And
1: mm-hmm. the
0: answer is the answer is continued practice, isn't it? So. Thank you, Jeff. Please say hello to Deborah when you talk with her, and Adam I, too. I shall. Thank you, Grace. How are you this morning?
3: I'm well. Thanks, John, for the teaching. This is great. Um, as you were as you were talking, I was trying to be as present in the moment without thinking about what I think you're talking about. Um, you know, and just watching myself make conclusions and start to spin the story of, well, maybe that means this and this means that. And every time I felt my mind going there, I realized that it's, that's not where we're trying to go, right? We're not trying to create more stories out of things I'm learning today. Just yep. trying to hear it. Um, and one of the things I do feel keeps coming up for me over the last few weeks as I've been coming here is like, I def, and maybe this is the Buddha's um, comments on aversion versus grasping. But I, then I say, okay, it's actually both, but yeah. like, I have a lot of um, I notice a lot of fear of giving up, you know, the story if you will, of who I am. And the, the fact that, you know, I'm trying to find something at all is, um, it's scary to think that there's nothing to find a little bit. And then I think, well, the, the way to, and again, I'm doing it now, right? Like I'm trying to make up how to do this or that or the other thing. But the thought I had was that fear itself um, can be calmed, just again by coming back to the realization that like all we have is this moment and this moment is constantly happening and there's always another chance to like remember the truth if you will
0: yeah then and it's just like that tracy so we're um But we're not going towards nothingness. We're going towards understanding, and that's the that's the the significant difference between what Siddhartha Gautama taught and what everybody taught during his time, and I would say what everybody is inclined towards today. Um, and and when we can understand the nature of dukkha, you know, dukkha is a, a, a very broad um, term, which. Uh, covers everything from a mild disappointment and distraction to extreme physical and emotional suffering. That's all that's all Dukkha, but really what Dukkha is, is thinking that I'm a part of the world, right? Because that is clinging to things on the outside. So again, we're learning to, to not self-identify with things, to start withdrawing that. And that can feel like annihilation. It can feel like like we're losing something can feel like we're losing ourselves how can i be in the world if i don't be in the world but the point of the dhamma is to not take anything personal but we're still we're more engaged in the world than we've ever been before because we're present for it so it's not annihilation we're not losing anything all that we're losing is our own contributions to stress you know the a lot to suit that um and continued practice will show that so, you're in, in just a few weeks, and you've mentioned this every class. I can tell that one of the reasons why we do this, go around the room, is so that I can hear what you're, what you're thinking about, and I can, uh, I can recognize whether you're practicing correctly or not based on the questions you're asking and um, what you're implying by those questions. And you are implying gaining an understanding of the Dhamma, you're going in the right direction. And even some of the questions that you have that that could um, they could turn into doubts right now are just something that you're looking at. And you you said something really important. Grasping and aversion are two sides of the same coin. You know, they're they're really the same thing. Aversion is just grasping after not wanting this, you know, (laughs) and grasping after I need to have this. And we live our whole lives like that, don't we, Tracy? Or we develop common peace. So you're headed in the right direction. Um, I would just continue to, to, to be gentle with yourself and be gentle with your practice and it will continue to bear fruit. Thank Um, you. and these four levels of jhana are something that you, you recognize that you experience in meditation.
3: Um, I'm not exactly sure what they are. So for, for me to answer that question, uh, what, what are they in the first, second, third, well,
0: the, the the first the first jhana begins with being, just taking joyful engagement that you've established seclusion it's time to meditate as that as you begin you'll be mindful of your breath and your body um, and directed thought and evaluation you'll direct your thought to your breath and away from distraction um, and you'll and in that first level of jhana you'll be evaluating your practice. And evaluating yourself as you continue practice that simply falls away, and so the, the, the next level of jhana is just that that directed thought and evaluation has fallen away just for a moment or two, it doesn't not not from for any set length of time. Um, and now you're taking joyful engagement rapture in recognizing that concentration is increasing. How do you know? Because you've put aside directed thought and evaluation for a moment or two. Concentration is interesting. And then as you continue, please.
3: No, no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you.
0: And then as you continue, your meditation deepens, meaning your concentration increases. It might feel like you're becoming more relaxed, but that's not really the point. It, It feels good usually, but recognize that you're, you're gaining more and more control of your mind, you're able to stay present, to to bring yourself back into this present moment. And as that continues, now you can experience a calm and peaceful mind, but it's also a calm and peaceful mind that is um, separate from anything that the body is signaling, meaning we recognize that our minds are calm, period. We might even have some um, bodily aches and pains, that's okay keep coming back to the sensation of breathing. And so, and I think you're seeing too, Tracy, that this is the basic practices established on our cushion. And then we take it off our cushion into our moment by moment life. No.
3: Yeah. I would say in the last week, um, I read the instructions of the jhana meditation and it did not try to interpret them. Right. I just, Read the instructions, listened to your instructions, and then followed the instructions as long as I could within the time frame of the meditation. And it's only since I started doing that, that I've experienced moments of any of this yeah. that you're talking about right now. Yep. Up until that point, up until this last week, it's been me trying to find some insight and that's wow. starting to change now.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, the, there is a specific insight into the three marks of existence, but that's very well focused. In fact, it's the subject of our next review after this one. Um, so you're you're going in the right direction, and you're bearing uh, you're bearing fruit from your practices. Good for you. I'm glad you joined us today. Thanks, John. Kevin. Good
1: morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Um, you know, I like. Jeff, um, I've also had like a distracted month or something. You know, the retreat was great. And then i had a lot of distraction and uh you know hard time concentrating, and losing my calm. Um this sutta is you know great, extremely important. You know, we, we reviewed it on retreat and several times before. And Happily, this morning, my meditation was very peaceful, calm, and pleasant, abiding. So, I'm hoping that you know, just sticking with the practice, it it will stay and come around. And,
0: and uh, I bet it will welcome to my life. Thank you. I'm glad you joined us today. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Brian, how are you? Dhamma teacher Brian.
4: Hello, Brian. I, I kept having a box cover my mute button. I couldn't like click my mute button. Um, <laughs> I'm good other than my technical challenges. The, uh, thank you for the teaching. The, the, I guess for me, the, the jhanas really represent the, the results of your mindfulness and the four foundations of mindfulness. The, the the defilements, the cessation of the defilements, the recognition of the aggregates, and this the release of the clinging to the aggregates, that's all the fourth foundation of mindfulness, being present, being mindful of the present quality of mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So the the jhanas are are really a, a description of the ever-increasing concentration developed through that mindfulness.
0: Yes. Well, be, that mindfulness of the breath.
4: Yes. Yes. Um, that's all I've got. I've got to run. I'm going to go see my new grandson today. So.
0: Wow. <laughs> Have a great time, <laughs> I'll, Brian. I'll
4: send pictures. Bye.
0: See you, Bye. <laughs> see, I'll see you soon. Bye. Hello, Mary.
1: Hi, John. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: Thanks. Um, I, think, um, I think today's teaching has allowed me to recognize um, that I have been um, mindful of the breath in the body while experiencing distraction and, um, some challenges. And I think I felt that, but I think you kind of have to get used to a, I think I felt that and knew that, but I feel like I confirmed it in today's class in looking at, um, things right now. And I think part of that is accepting the mundaneness of what the practice um, does in your life when you're dealing with um, challenges or distractions or consequences in a different way than you have uh, previously. So, um, you know, I think that's a good thing. And um, so I am thank you and the sangha for this teaching this morning. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mary. Dhamma teacher, Jen. Good morning. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for
1: asking. Good.
5: Um, thank you for the teaching today. Um, I think what this what I've sort of been, I don't know. I, I, I got it. I'm like at 50%. So I don't know if I'm able to explain myself, but I'm gonna try Um, what I've been sort of noticing lately and is that I'm, I'm really good at recognizing the quality of my mind, Mm. but I'm not so good at immediately judging and evaluating that, that, quality of mind. So, um, even if I can allow myself to kind of zoom out on that evaluation and just recognize it as evaluation that's happening, okay. that doesn't need to stop. <clears throat> I don't need to like think of my way out of that. I just have to come back to, um, Breathing,
1: yeah.
5: that is, uh, and, and also just kind of like, remember that, oh, I'm just, I'm just evaluating my quality of mind and that's just what, you know, brains do and that's okay. And that's just what's happening in this moment. Instead yeah. of getting kind of caught up in, um, ca- getting carried away in that, well, now I have to fix, what I'm thinking about, or how fix or change my thinking.
0: Yeah, and that's not instruction at the end of meditation, too, isn't it? To be at peace with your mind, it's your mind. Meaning yeah, whatever. That's, that's why I love it. Your it's your mind. Yeah. That's why I
5: love that. It's my favorite.
0: <laughs> yeah, and again, think about just think about that in just a realistic sense. Why shouldn't I be at peace with my mind? It's my mind. Yeah. No matter how conflicted it might be, I don't have to take that conflict personally. And I don't have to take my internal conflict and feel like that justifies me expressing that that internal conflict externally Yeah, in all kinds of ways. You know, in other words, I have taken ownership of my own feelings and thoughts.
5: Yeah. And when you,
0: when
5: you, when you kind of, when I approach it that way, I, I, I recognize that if, you know, if i've been practicing sort of being harsh with myself for 50 years well it makes sense that you know you might still be a little harsh with yourself like so yeah. why not why not Your just just that. be okay with that in this moment I don't have, i don't have to change it
0: yes. right and in you fact say, if you're gonna if you're going to change it gonna right. change it you have to first own it don't you you have yeah. to be at peace with it and say yeah, yeah. Let's, you know, before I could stop being a thief, I really wasn't. But before I could change anything in my life, you know, before I could stop drinking, I had to accept it. And that's it. The, the first thing in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is accept the fact that you're a drunk. You right. know, that's how you, we, we accept that our minds are distracted. You know, it, it is, it, it's, an, it's an utterly mundane uh, practice. It's just recognizing what human beings do. But the, profund, the profundity of it is where it brings us. Yeah. Is a useful mind. Yeah. Thank you. you. Even with COVID, you got it. Bridget, do you mind anybody? You don't have to be on camera. Do you mind? Bridget, do you mind?
6: Doesn't bother me.
0: And nobody has to speak, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Good morning, Bridget.
6: Good morning, Tom. Thank you for the teaching. Uh, yeah, I I guess I could kind of echo a little bit of what everyone else is saying. This is just one of those weeks in life. And it was interesting to, you know, as usual, to go through these moments at this stage in my practice. And, uh, you know, like the rejection, the disappointment, the stress, the kids, the husband, the traffic. Like, life. It, it was just this week was just impactful. of all the big and all the little things and um, it was I was aware like okay (laughs) now this okay and in some moments I was able to kind of apply the Dhamma more skillfully and in other moments not so much but what I noticed was that like the baseline was calm yeah, that's outstanding. Instead of the baseline that I would have observed a couple of years ago, which just would have been, you know, madness. So it was kind of like the times where I got, you know, more sets or even the times I allowed myself to just sit with my disappointment and give myself the chance to say, okay, well, what next? It's just like, okay, like my baseline is... Much more calm, maybe distracted right. a little bit, but not. Oh my God, the world is ending. This thing I wanted didn't happen. Who am I? What am I? If this, <laughs> you know, like all that stuff, all that I'm making was like out of it. So that was kind of cool. That it was just a human life occurring, and some of the things were not so great. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and that- they were just like, okay, that wasn't great. I didn't like that. That wasn't what I what I wanted. But okay.
0: That happened, and what you described is just another way of, of describing the fourth foundation of mindfulness, isn't it? You know, you're just you're at peace with what's occurring. You have this baseline of calm. You know, it's just what that means. So good for you, Great. and that you recognize it. So at the end of
6: the week, I'm happy to be here with
0: all of you. Yeah. and and that's something else important about Dharma practice, isn't it? That you, you might have a, a difficult week, but that's that's not because of the dhamma you have your present for this week even if it was difficult because of the dhamma and that allows you to recognize that baseline
6: you know? In my refuge, yeah the sangha and the
0: thank you bridget cody welcome to our sangha you don't have to say anything but we'd love to hear what you um, have to say and if you especially if you have any questions um so, well um, see you rob
2: I'm grateful to be here thank you for your words today um I, um, I got a lot out of, uh, of listening and, um, I, uh, feel extremely refreshed wow. to be here, um, to be in this space. Um, and, uh, I really...
5: It struck a chord with me what you said about um, uniting the mind and the body, which is like a,
2: seems like a fairly simple concept that I must have heard hundreds (laughs) of times over the course of my life, but I don't know that I ever directly equated uniting the mind and the body with concentration or with
5: focus.
0: Me too. It wasn't until I came to this practice that that I understood what that meant.
2: And I think that, yeah, that could be very powerful for me. Um, and I'm just really looking forward to, uh, to getting to know this practice and to, uh, to growing here. So, yeah.
0: Thank you. Again, welcome to our Sangha. Um, give yourself time, you know, let the Dhamma come to you and it really, this what you did here today is the, the most important part of practice, being part of a Sangha. Um, so as often as you can come to class if you can't try to zoom. Um, I do record every class, and usually within 24 to 48 hours of the class, I post it on the website, so you can catch up that way. But um, As far as your basic practice, however you want, how, the length of time, and we talked about this last night, so the length of time isn't nearly as important as a consistency, so if the most you can do right now is five minutes twice a day, spaced about 12 hours apart, if you can, that's good enough to get started. In fact, most people start with short periods of meditation, um, but consistency is the most important thing. You can do that every day and then, you know, come to class and, and, um, the more time you put in the Dhamma going over, there's a lot of uh, info on the website. There's almost 400 suttas that you can review. There's class, it's classified in different ways, you know, in different studies. Um, but, but, Start right now to be very gentle with yourself. Uh, Treat the Dhamma gently. Treat yourself gently. Treat the things that you're learning about yourself with great gentleness. And understand that you've never done anything wrong. And there's nothing, I mean, it's important. There's nothing wrong with you. And I think you understand you're not trying to fix a broken self. You're just trying to learn what it means to be a human being. And most of human life just puts a lot of stuff in that way that we just can't see it. Mm-hmm. So really what we're doing is we're, we're concentrating our mind so we can see reality. reality, And that's not that tough. <laughs> it's just what's here. It's a pleasure to have you in Thank you. Dharma teacher David.
1: I'm all set. Thank you.
0: Oh, I'm all set, too, then, I think. Um, so we'll finish with meta as we always do, and I'll explain that a little bit more. And... Um, uh, we'll continue this this uh, review of Jhana with Tuesday's class, which I think is the Saraputta Sutta. Another good one. Give me a moment. So the the Metta Sutta is the Buddha's teachings um, on uh, describing the qualities of an awakened human being, and we almost close almost every class with it. So. Take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, Those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they remain, excuse me, they remain in, in refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one, Having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you, John. Peace, everyone. See
1: you all online. Thanks, John. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks, John. Goodbye. You're back, Jen. Hope you feel better.
0: Thank you for listening.